If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about literary dependence and the synoptic problem. This is looking at the process by which the Gospel authors went about writing the Gospel books. Given that the Gospel books are so similar, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it raises the questions such as, do they copy each other? Are the similarities due to the divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit? What do the evangelical scholars say about this? Is there something wrong with their approach? John will be looking to answer these questions and more. We're continuing from the previous episode today. We hope you enjoy! Liberal scholars argue that the Gospel books were not written by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, by John, they were not written by the so-called traditional authors. These names were ascribed to them much later. They're, they're anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. And they based them on these oral traditions. The big problem with that is, as we saw in our series where we went through gospel authorship, Matthew was written by Matthew the Apostle. Mark was written by Mark, the companion, traveling companion of initially Paul and then Peter co-worker of Peter in Rome. Luke was written by a Gentile, was not an eyewitness, was a traveling companion of Paul the Apostle. John was written by the Apostle John, Jesus' closest personal friend. So here's a question. Even if there were oral traditions floating around, and the liberal scholars would say there were lots of oral traditions floating around because you know, Matthew didn't write until somewhere in the year 80, so like half a century after Jesus' time. So lots of oral traditions, all embellished and full of fictions. But in fact, Matthew was an eyewitness. What's the significance of that? If he were an eyewitness, he wouldn't have to depend on any oral traditions. Exactly. If somebody asked me, even 50 years later, somebody asked me to write down about our move from Montreal to Toronto, I would sit down and write it down because I was there. I saw these things. I remember them. Mark, we're told, was written based on what Peter said about his own eyewitness testimony. So why would they resort to writing down oral traditions if they were eyewitnesses themselves? And if there were these oral traditions floating around that had become embellished, and there's no reason to believe there were, but even if there were, Matthew would know the truth. He wouldn't put in any of these embellishments. Peter would know the truth. He'd be preaching that and Mark would be writing that down without these supposed embellishments. So you really, you see this shared oral tradition view where it's favored by liberals has to go hand in hand with the idea that the writers were anonymous and they were not the people that they're ascribed to. They were not apostles. They were not companions of apostles. It's absolutely essential to discredit the gospel books. And it just frosts me where you see how many evangelical scholars... Well, on the one hand, we'll, we'll try to say, yeah, Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, John wrote John. 
will still, out of the other side of their mouths, talk about this oral tradition, how they're based on oral tradition. How does that make sense? It doesn't. It really doesn't. If these people are writing their own personal experiences, their own eyewitness testimony, which they are, and they're doing it empowered by the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised in John 14, 26, they have no need for oral tradition. Okay? So the, to me, that's another unacceptable view. And that brings us then to the biggie. And that's, as we've mentioned it a number of times before, literary dependence. And literary dependence is the idea that these gospel books, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are just too similar to have been composed independently. The only way they could have ended up so similar is if they copied one from another. Never mind all those differences. We don't want to talk about that. Never mind trying to explain why eyewitnesses would copy one from another because we're telling you they're not eyewitnesses at all. I have a few questions about that, though. If they're just too similar to have been written independently, how come the early church fathers, the early Christians, the, the first generation of Christians after the apostles, the leaders, how come they never noticed this? That's a good question. How come they never noticed this? Because they talk at length about the authorship of the gospel books, how they were written. They were in a position to know this. And we've talked about that before. None of them suggests that, that they copied one from another. None of them suggests that Matthew copied from Mark. They all tell us that Matthew wrote first. He couldn't have copied from Mark. Mark didn't exist yet. Oh, but you know our scars are so clever because they're experts in, in Koine Greek. But let me ask you, are we to suppose that these modern scholars who study Koine as an academic subject know it better than those who, for whom it was a living language? Of course not. Their mother tongue? It's absurd when you think about it. The problem is people don't think about it. They hear these claims as, oh, they just accept it without any kind of critical filter. Which is why so many of our evangelical scholars just accept this idea of literary dependence. Is it really a viable explanation? Let's look at the ones that, that we have put together, we've covered so far, that we've talked about, and let's discuss which is which is the best or most reasonable one. Okay? So these are the three explanations we have for the similarities in the Synoptic Gospel books. We have the Logia of Matthew, we have the shared oral tradition, and we have literary dependence. Logia of Matthew, that the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, independently used these Logia that were written down by Matthew in Aramaic. Uh, oral tradition, the idea that the apostles, as they preached, put together kind of standardized formats in which, of the stories which they told, and so they're all using these same standardized formats. Literary dependence is actually copying, where one writer would take another already existing gospel book and put it in front of him and just copy it out as he wrote his own. So the question then is, out of these three theories, these three possibilities, and again, we emphasize divine inspiration explains the verbal agreements, and nothing more is needed to explain that. But that doesn't mean that God couldn't have used something like the Logia. So let me ask you then, look at these three theories and compare them. First, there's the issue of the verbal agreements, which is what prompts this discussion in the first place. 
would the logia of Matthew, if they use these, would that explain the verbal agreements among them? Yes. What about the verbal differences? Well, yes, because even if they're all using the same source, they, that doesn't mean they couldn't also have had their their own material as well. Yes, I'm talking about the differences in the shared material. It explains the differences because the Logia were actually written in Aramaic, not Greek, and so as they translate it, they, they can make differences in how they translate it. It doesn't mean that one is right and the other is wrong. There can be different ways to translate that are equally correct. So the Logia explains the verbal agreements, the verbal differences. Does it accord with the testimony of the early church fathers? Yes. Yes. Uh, Logia comes actually from Papias himself. That's where the idea comes from. And it would accord with the early church testimony that each gospel writer wrote independently. So the Logia theory explains all three of these. What about if we look at the oral tradition view? Would that explain the verbal agreements? Yes. What about the verbal differences? Well, if, the, if they're all memorizing a formula, why should there be verbal differences? Because some of them didn't memorize it correctly? Well, it's, it's not a same matter if we wouldn't memorize it correctly. It's more a matter of, well, we're memorizing this so we have the stories told. But it's not essential to get it exactly word for word perfect. We're just trying to get the stories across. And people may not have been able to memorize perfectly, and every time they recite it, they would get it exactly the same as everybody else. But these kind of differences then would be more or less random. They wouldn't have redactive value, which we talked about before. So the oral tradition view also explains the verbal agreements and the verbal differences, but does it accord with the early testimony of the church fathers? No. No, it doesn't, because this... The church fathers all agreed that the gospel is just wrote independently. The eyewitnesses wrote from their own reminiscences, their own memories, called them the memoirs of the apostles, not that they were basing it on, on these kind of floating oral traditions. Now, what about the literary dependence view? Would the literary dependence view explain the verbal agreements? Yes. What about the verbal differences? No. Absolutely not. Because as we said, why... if you actually have the written one in front of you. If there's a difference, it must have happened on purpose, and there's no reason for, for almost all of these differences, no redactive value. And does it accord with the early testimony of the church? No. No, absolutely not, because this has them copying one from another. The church fathers tell us that they all wrote independently. So out of these three views, the, the logia, the oral tradition, the literary, which is the worst, absolutely worst, choice to make the literary dependence view and which one do you think liberal scholars go for the literary dependence view yes not surprisingly they pick the worst possible theory what is surprising is that almost all evangelical scholars uncritically go along with that i'm starting to see a pattern with uncritically going along with the liberal scholars when it comes to evangelical scholars yes and, and there's a reason for that and and sometime we can do an entire program on this to discuss it in detail but in a nutshell where you had the spread of liberal theology in Europe and that that was going on for a long time North America tended to be blissfully unaware of these and when they first showed up in North America and really what what started it was when Union Theological Seminary hired this European trained professor Charles Augustus Briggs to, to teach Old Testament 
And he started saying these things like the Old Testament is is not historically reliable. There's no such thing as biblical inspiration. The morality is primitive. We shouldn't follow it. Divine inspiration is a boogeyman tale told to scare people. And Christian leaders in the West kind of were shocked by this and decided they needed to fight back. But the problem was this had already spread and become so endemic, it became very difficult to fight back. It led into what's come to be called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, where the people who were trying to defend the truth of the gospel got together, made writings defending what they considered the absolute fundamentals, including the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, and so on. And this went on for about 15 years or so. And in the end, the fundamentalists lost. All of the seminaries, all of the university theology departments were all in the hands of liberal scholars. And the response that they made was to simply separate, to just exit completely from the academy and leave the field to the liberals. And you know, they, they went ape over this, spreading all kinds of, of nonsense unopposed. It was not really until the 1950s, the early 1950s, that, that some of these evangelicals who became embarrassed by this, who wanted to get back into the academy, they were tired of being mocked and looked down upon. And they, they started a movement called neo-evangelicalism, where they would re-enter the academy. But because all of these, these views were already now carved in stone... The, the price was basically, yeah, you can come in, but there are certain views you have to accept. Don't try coming in here with, with a young earth creationism, teaching that the, the world was made by God in six 24-hour days, maximum 7,688 years ago. Forget it. And that was the price they paid. And then, again, they, they came in, they were presented with these things, they, with the facade of scholarly development, and they didn't feel qualified to challenge them. So this is why you're going to see an awful lot of this kind of thing where you have liberals leading the way in terms of putting together theories that undermine the Bible and evangelicals uncritically going along with it. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.